these transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. The United States general election of 2020 has proven to be a hotly contested circus. And as we record this episode in the second week of December, 2020, of course, it looks like it's far from over. Crazy, right? Some might say unprecedented. Well, those people would be wrong. It's happened before, and it will probably happen again. Stay tuned to find out that, once again, there's nothing new under the sun, especially when it comes to politics on episode 213 of Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on Coffee with Jeff. Hello and welcome to the 213th episode of Coffee with Jeff. You've probably figured out that I'm not Jeff. It's me, Nancy Fry, again here with my husband, Gordon, taking over for Jeff so he can have the month of December off, a well-deserved break. Now, he still does his daily morning coffee. I forget what he calls it, probably daily coffee, if you follow him on Facebook. And it's a fun couple of minutes, usually kind of a on-this-day sort of thing, a lot of movie trivia, and it's a fun thing to listen to over your morning coffee. So with that, I think we're going to go ahead and get into this. We're recording this in December of 2020 in the United States here. We're in the midst of some crazy election shenanigans. We had a general election, which includes um, voting for the next president of the United States. And there's a lot of contested state elections, a lot of crazy stuff going on. Uh, just want to let the whole world know that there's nothing new under the sun. We've we've used that topic, that kind of theme before, nothing new under the sun. And it's so true. Human beings are human beings, and there's always going to be crazy stuff. And this kind of wacky election shenanigans have happened before, and they'll probably happen again. And I'm going to hand the mic over to Gordon to talk about uh, questionable elections of history. Well, good morning. I've had my coffee, so hopefully I'm ready to go here. And we're going to talk about, again, questionable elections. Uh, the first one we're going to start with is the, the election of 1800. And this is just, this is what, the fourth election in U.S. history, fourth presidential election. Of course, George Washington was president for two terms, and then John Adams. Well, John Adams ran again, but um, he was defeated because... Thomas Jefferson, and his running partner, Aaron Burr, got far more of the electoral votes. The problem wasn't with too many people running. It was the fact that the Constitution only said that whoever won the most electoral votes would be president, the second would be the vice president, and since Jefferson and Burr ran together, they both got the same number of electoral votes. And so I was like, okay, who's president and who's vice president here? Uh, this, of course, threw everything into a tizzy. Now, one thing to keep in mind is there was no popular election. There still isn't really a popular election of the president. But at the time, you elected your state representatives who they and still do, elect the electors. 
So when you hear about faithless electors and stuff like that, they, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that the electors have to follow the, the popular vote. It doesn't. It's just generally seen as a good idea. But <clears throat> and just like basically tradition or a courtesy, or... a courtesy, but also yeah. you don't want your house burned down. <laughs> uh, so it's generally seen as a, the, the, the wise thing to do. At any rate, the election was thrown to Congress as it is supposed to. And in this case, as it will, as it would today, the election is when it's thrown to Congress, each state gets one vote. It's not the number of votes that you have representatives in Congress. It's each state gets one vote. So Wyoming, with, three, with one representative and two senators, gets the same power as California, with like 34 or something like that, wow. um, uh, representatives and two senators. So at any rate... So when somebody says, when we're talking about the Electoral College, that's different. That's totally different. Yeah. Whole, whole different program. Each state gets the number of electoral votes per representatives and senators. But if the election gets thrown to Congress, one vote per state. At any rate, in this one, the, uh, the two contestants who are technically on the same ticket, Aaron Burr and Thomas Jefferson, well, Burr wasn't against the idea of becoming president. He had his own presidential aspirations, but his longtime enemy, Alexander Hamilton, well, actually, they weren't even enemies. He and Hamilton had some disputes, but Alexander was the head of the New York delegation, and they had actually been friends, very close friends. Uh, Burr had saved Hamilton's life during the Revolutionary War, during battle in New York, in New York. Um, they had dinner together and stuff. The problem came when Aaron Burr represented the Manhattan Company. And the Manhattan Company, which was supposed to bring water from upstate Manhattan to way up in the Bronx, down to you know, upstate Manhattan Island, down to New York. Uh, and every once in a while, they're digging up in New York and they still find these elm log pipes that were for this purpose. Um, in the small print, it said that the Manhattan Company could take in and lend out money, which made it a bank. They got the charter. They broke into the New York banking monopoly, uh, which Hamilton represented. By the way, the Manhattan Company became the Manhattan Bank, which is now with Chase Manhattan, so it's part of the Chase Bank of today. So that's one of those little things. Anyway... The I'll get a little more detail on that in a second, but Hamilton put his weight behind Jefferson, who he had actually been not enemies with, but they had been adversaries all through um, the political life of the United States uh, because Hamilton was more of an elitist and Jefferson, even though he came from, a, well, he was a bastard. He was an illegitimate child, but he was an elitist because he married into the New York banking community. And Jefferson, although he was a very wealthy slave owner, had a huge plantation and whatnot, was more the protector and champion of the common man, of the, the yeoman farmer. But even though they were at odds most of the time, politically, Hamilton said, Jefferson is a gentleman. 
and I can trust him to be, remain a gentleman. He didn't like Aaron Burr anymore because of this dispute. It, it wasn't long after, it was, well, I think it was 1804, while, while Burr was still pres, vice president of the United States, things heated up. Hamilton insulted Burr's daughter, who was the apple of his eye, and he was a widower, and his daughter was, and she was wonderful. She was a shooter. She was a horsewoman. She was all kinds. She was just out there. She was way ahead of her time. Hamilton insulted her. Burr challenged him to a duel and killed him. And because it wasn't really in the jurisdiction of New York, and Burr was vice president, that nothing came of it. But it's cool. The guy who founded the Chase Manhattan Bank shot the guy on the $10 bill. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> There's your trivia for There's today. There's your trivia for today. But it ends up with Jefferson becoming president, and he was president because he was president, had a close relationship with France. You have the whole Louisiana Purchase. With the Louisiana Purchase, we doubled the size of the United States territorially, became a westward-looking country instead of eastward-looking across the Atlantic, and changed the whole tenor of what the United States was about. The whole westward movement became more of a, a movement. Uh, but the end result, really, was the, uh, the Twelfth Amendment to the Constitution, which clarified things. And it was no longer the vice president is the guy with the second number, largest number of electoral votes. They ran on the same ticket. And so that, that clarified things. The next contested uh, election I want to talk about is the uh, election of 1824. Another four-way election. Oh, my goodness. There's, there's, these, this seems to be a common theme here. Four-way election. Uh, John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson, Henry Clay, and William Crawford ran. Crawford was ill. In fact, he suffered a... Uh, uh, what I think uh, an aneurysm or something like that after the voting was done. And so he was out. Henry Clay ended up throwing his weight behind Andrew, behind, pardon me, John Quincy Adams during the dispute. Uh, again, there was nobody got a, uh, a majority of the electoral votes. And because Clay threw his weight behind Adams for the uh, congressional vote, John Quincy Adams won. And, uh, of course, John Quincy Adams is, you know, famous for not only being the son of John Adams, but also he was the uh, the lawyer during the Amistad case, if you're familiar with that at all, about slavery and whatnot. Um, but uh, it, Clay ended up becoming Henry, um, John Quincy Adams's Secretary of State, which was seen as a, a sort of a jumping-off place for the presidency at the time. Because it wasn't the vice president that usually became president. Afterwards, it was the secretary of state. And so when John Quincy Adams named Henry Clay as his secretary of state, Jackson's supporters called that the corrupt bargain. They said, well, this was a bargain. So, so, so he sold his soul to become the uh, uh, secretary of state because he wanted to be president and all this stuff. Anyway, Henry Clay ended up being, um, you know, he was very important throughout the his history as, uh, as a Congress, congressional leader, uh, was the author of both the 
Compromise of 1820, which made Missouri the furthest north slave state that would be allowed, and also the Compromise of 1850, which uh, brought in, it was basically uh, to keep slavery from going much further west, even though he's a slave owner, but he's from Kentucky, which is a border state. Anyway, Henry Clay was a fascinating guy worth talking about, but Jackson was so incensed by this, and he was a man that you didn't mess with. I mean, when he became president, some jaywalkers walking across the White House lawn and he took a shot at the guy <laughs> for, <laughs> for having the impertinence to, to cut across the White House lawn. And he was in all kinds of duels and stuff. He was cold. He had a temper on him. But he was also, but he was a, a man of the people. He was part of these, these border people, um, borderers from Scots English border in Northern Ireland. Hey, I resemble that remark. You do, me too. And the um, so he's rough and ready. He may he wasn't well educated as a youngster, but he got one anyway by hard work. He was a lawyer in the frontier town of Nashville in the new state of Tennessee in eight, in the late 18th century in 1790s, and by diligence, hard work, and probably a whole lot of, of manipulation, um, made it to Major General of the Tennessee Militia, got his name fighting Indians, and then at Battle of New Orleans became a absolutely, uh, you know, household name in the United States. But as a result of his defeat in 1824, he put together and founded what became the Democratic Party which is the oldest party of the two in the United States. And <clears throat> that was, when it was founded, it was uh, a populist, anti-elitist party. And they kept that for a long time. They kept that notion. They still try to have that notion uh, of being for the, uh, a populist party, even though that's getting a little tarnished these days. Um, but definitely, Jackson put the common man in the driver's seat. Of, of electoral politics. Uh, it, no longer was it just the elite who were nominating their people and the elite who were, um, who were uh, in charge of the electoral college. By now, with the 12th Amendment and whatnot, the popular vote actually had something to do with how the electoral college was run. Didn't, didn't insist upon it, but it certainly was um, effective. Uh, and... The common man, again, was now a uh, part of the equation of electoral politics. If you didn't have the backing of at least something approximating half the population, half the voters, um, you probably weren't going to make it as president. And when you say he wanted, he wanted everybody to you know, have a say, what, was, what were the requirements to vote at this point in time in the 1820s? You had to be free, white, male, and over 21. That was it. You didn't have to be a property owner? Uh, that that was, I believe that was part of the... Anyway, no, not anymore. Okay. Um, because prior to that, and I think that was, that was part of the 12th Amendment, um, women had been able to vote prior to that. Oh. Because if women were property owners, if they're free, white, and over 21 and owned property, they could vote. Now, most women couldn't because when their husband was alive, he was the actual owner of the property. Mm. But a widow woman 
especially if she didn't have any living sons, she owned that outright in her name. She was a voter. Okay. So by this populist movement of giving the vote to the common man actually disenfranchised women. Ugh. Whoops. Because a woman with property could vote. After that, only men could vote. Because mm. it stated the gender. Before that, it was property. Oh, wow. And you know, I don't even know if it even said you had to be white, but you had to be free and you had to sure. have property. So it disenfranchised some people while enfranchising others, which is usually the give and take that that happens. Okay, now I'm going to talk about the election of 1860. We don't think of that as being contested necessarily, but it was. Um, there was, again, a four-way election, Lincoln versus, you know, everybody knows about Abraham Lincoln winning the election of 1860. But he was up against Stephen Douglas, John Breckinridge, and John Bell, all three of them who were pro-slavery Democrats. But they busted up the vote, um. and because of that... Lincoln only won a plurality of the popular vote. He only won 40% of the popular vote. But? But because the rest of the, the other 60% was split between three other guys and the Electoral College. None of them had it, enough. Yeah, none yeah. of them had enough. They didn't have enough, and so Lincoln won with a mere plurality, only 40% of the vote. Did they think Lincoln was so unlikely that they were willing to basically run against each other? I think that they were so exasperated and uh, by the way things were going for them, the, the Democrats, especially the Southern Democrats, that, uh, that they, they weren't willing to work together to make it happen, you know. is it, one of those things where everybody was, was, um, had an idea and everybody wanted to have the take the ball and so the other guys ended up snatching it and running with it so it's it was one of those things that happened um now it was a fairly straightforward choice though um lincoln a lincoln victory was known was probably going to split up the union because the southerners weren't you know especially south carolina and a couple others were they said if lincoln's elected we're leaving and there's nothing in the Constitution that says you, you can't. I mean, we're not the Crips and the Bloods. It's not like when you join a, uh, the organization, you can't leave. Um, but that's the way it ended up working, you know. Um, you know, like mafiosos, once you join, you can't leave. That seems to be the way that it has been interpreted. But, um, but it was definitely going to cause some major problems if Lincoln was elected. Douglas was a moderate Democrat. He was nominally pro-slavery, but more, you know, let's let it work itself out. And he's called the Little Giant. Of course, he was about, you know, five foot four, and Lincoln was six foot four. So <laughs> when they had their Lincoln-Douglas debates, it was, I guess everyone was quite amused with that. But they're both wonderful speakers. What's cool is that, and nobody really recognizes, is that the Lincoln-Douglas debates had nothing to do with the presidential election. It was for the election of the senator from Illinois to Washington. So it was popular, but the state, it was interesting, the states elected the senators from the legislature. The elect, legislature of each state elected their senators. 
there was no popular vote for senators, hmm. not until 1913 or so. Uh, but everybody in the United States who could read knew about the Lincoln-Douglas debates because every paper in the United States published them. The full transcript. Full transcript. Yeah. And people had a lot longer uh you know, attention, attention span. span. Yeah, they didn't have the attention span of a gnat anymore, you know, like we do now. And so they could actually read these whole things, debate it amongst themselves. And so it was a, it was widely known. And the debate was much, mostly about popular sovereignty, which was each territory would allow itself to decide whether it was free or slave. Now, supposedly the compromises of 1820 and 1850 had solved this, but Henry Clay was dead. The giants who had had guided the country through a rather rough course up until this point were gone. And so this new bunch of guys. Lincoln actually represented the brand new Repu- Republican Party, which had come together from the ashes of the Whig Party. The Whig Party, the problem with them was they didn't really represent anything other than, well, we're not them. And, you know, part of the like the know nothing party was a part of that. And it sort of collapsed in the early 1850s. The first guy who was the Republican nominee was John C. Fremont. Thank God he wasn't elected. That guy screwed up everything he ever tried from, you know, the the naval conquest of California to being pretty much responsible for the shootout at OK Corral. I mean, this guy. <laughs> okay, that piqued my interest. Yeah, so we'll, we'll talk try, about him we'll someday. We'll talk about the OK Corral someday. Uh, and he screwed up every battle he was in. An amazingly, well, as one author put it, he was one of these guys who could step out onto the national stage and forget his lines. So uh, he was a piece of work. Anyway, Lincoln was was far, far, far better. Now, General Sherman... William Tecumseh Sherman, whose brother was a senator, so he knew all these guys. He said that uh, he said that when Lincoln started, when he first came to Washington, he thought he was nothing but another political crank. By the end of the war, by 1864-65, he turned into a statesman. So, you know, that office has a tendency to make people grow one way or another, one way or another. Uh, of course, the result of that election, even though Lincoln only got 40% of the vote, he got a majority of the electoral votes and won. And the result of that, of course, was the Civil War because several states, starting with South Carolina, seceded from the Union starting in December of 1860. And then when Lincoln was president, became president in March, that's another thing to consider, presidential um, inauguration wasn't until March, not January like it is now. But when Lincoln was inaugurated, one of the first things he did was call for 75,000 volunteers to put down the insurrection, put down the rebellion, and states that had been on the fence, like Virginia and Tennessee and whatnot, and Texas said, no, 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 no. This is over the line. This is beyond the pale. We're not playing this game. So they seceded as well. Wow. Okay. Next and last we'll talk about is the election of 1876, the bicentennial election. Just as... Centennial. Centennial, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Oh, sorry. 
bicentennial one was was Jimmy yeah. Carter. Yeah, you and I were teenagers during that one. Yeah. So the um, one interesting fact I'll throw out there was one of the reasons that George Armstrong Custer went out and got himself killed uh, in the Sioux War of 1876-77 was he was trying to make a big name, make a big splash so he could be become the Republican nominee for the presidency. That's so Custer. That was so Custer. I mean, yeah, he, he had quite the ego. Uh, General Grant had been the president from uh, 1868 to uh, 1876, and uh, he had been thought he was going to run again, but he declined. He decided not to. Uh, sadly, he was a good man, but he had was kind of had he made some poor choices, and so he had a very corrupt uh, administration, unfortunately. Uh, and unfortunately, too, he was very loyal to his friends, who were unfortunately corrupt, and so that oh. made for bad things. At any rate, the election ended up being between the Republican nominee, who was Rutherford B. Hayes, and the Democrat, who was Samuel Tilden. Hayes was from Ohio, Tilden from New York. Now, both of these states were renowned and remained renowned for voter fraud, or shall we say voter irregularities. And this was no different. So Tilden got the popular vote, and he also received 184 electoral votes. Hayes received 165 electoral votes. You needed 185 to win. Tilden was down by one. Oddly enough, in Oregon, one of their electoral votes was disqualified because you're not supposed to have an elected or appointed official be an elector. So his was, that was kicked out. Who knows if it was for Tilden or not. But anyway, that one was kicked out. And uh, so it went to Congress. And there was lots of smoke-filled room discussions going on. Um, there was a, uh, a committee that was put together of, what was it, a couple of two Supreme Court justices and two senators and several congressmen and stuff that was thrown together. Um, that, and it was even, except the one odd one, the odd man out was an independent. He was neither, neither Republican nor Democrat. Unfortunately, at the last minute, he bowed out, was replaced by a Republican, so Hayes was given the election. He was given the 20 disputed electoral votes. Now, uh, what is of note here is that one of the first things that Hayes did when he became president was to rescind Reconstruction in the South. He ended the Reconstruction of the South where the Republicans, the radical Republicans, had been forcing the formerly rebellious Southerners uh, to submit to Republican rule. Uh, and this is where you have had actually blacks elected to office. You had black senators, black, uh, 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 black legislators, um, blacks in state uh you know, all former slaves, of course, but in, in state legislatures. Um, unfortunately, because most of them had started out illiterate, uh, a lot of them were seen as puppets by northern, what they called carpetbaggers. So there was a lot of um, a lot of bad blood going on there. And there was a very strong demand by the Democrats to end 
reconstruction. Um, it was interesting when I was in my youth, I was very good friends with an old Texan who said it wasn't the war that caused the animosity by the South to the North. It was reconstruction. Uh, the Southerners could deal with the fact that they were beaten militarily, beaten fair and square. They didn't like reconstruction. Unfortunately, the result of reconstruct the end of reconstruction, and probably because it was rather harsh, was you ended up with a backlash. Yeah. And so you end up with all the Jim Crow laws. And these Jim Crow laws lasted until the 1960s. And so that was, that, there was some, you know, really unfortunate reactions and counter-reactions to that whole Civil War. And, um, you know, this is all basically, you know, post-Civil War politics going on. But that was the result with the election of a Republican to the presidency in the form of Rutherford B. Hayes, the Democrats in the South regained power and were remained in power and as the solid South basically until um, the era of, uh, of the civil rights movement. So for you know almost a hundred years, uh, that was the result. So, so elections do have consequences. They have big consequences. And sometimes um, these elections are a whole lot messier than we would like to think. They're not nice and cut and dried. Um, in fact, if you really wanted to get into it, we could talk about the Kennedy election of 1960, wherein uh, the dispute was, it was very, very close between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy and Richard Daley later bragged how he he brought in the vote for Kennedy, the and it was Illinois that was the deciding factor. And Mayor Richard Daley of Chicago bragged that it was that his dead vote that got Kennedy elected. Who knows at this late date, but um, it's entirely possible. And I consider myself a Kennedy Democrat, so you know, <laughs> so yeah. there. This is I'm not being partisan on this best presidents. But there it is. Uh, things are messy. A lot messier than we want to think. Well, that was uh, that's that was quite the roller coaster ride. <laughs> yeah. Uh, awesome. Well, thanks so much, Gordon. It uh, gives perspective to what's going on right now. There's, a, you know, people like to say, oh, this is unprecedented and this is not the way we do things. Yeah, no, it's, like, it is exactly the way we do yeah, things. Yeah, it's politics are always messy and nuanced and there's so much going on behind the scenes that we have no idea about and we won't know until it's in the history books. Yes, anyone who likes laws and sausages shouldn't watch them being made. <laughs> yeah, okay. All righty then. If you're interested in uh, hearing Gordon talk some more about crazy political stuff, you can hearken back to episode 207 of Coffee with Jeff, Political Shenanigans, where he talks about Andy Jackson again. He's always good material. Abraham Lincoln again. And also Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. There was some crazy stuff going on in there. Next week, Gordon and I are going to be on again, and we're going to talk about, I think... Our three favorite historical films. Each of us are going to take three and talk about them. And that should be interesting, if nothing else. Uh, getting, I know Jeff likes to do a lot of movie-themed stuff. And so I think that's what we're going to do for the last episode of 2020. And with that, how about the ending credits? 
You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. We thank you for listening. This show takes money to produce and keep on the air, so if you have a few coins to help us keep things going, that would be awesome. You can do so by contributing to Jeff's Patreon page. Just go to coffeewithjeff.com. That's all one word, Coffee with Jeff. For more information, including a link to Coffee with Jeff's homepage at Transistor.fm. Be sure to tell your podcast listening friends, won't you? You can email Jeff at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com with your comments or story ideas. And also follow at Twitter by searching for Coffee with Jeff, all one word, and at Facebook, too. We'd like to thank Jeff for letting us do his podcast this week, David Metzger for the snazzy Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all of you who repost the show across social media. You have a special place in our hearts. Take care, stay healthy, and Jeff will be back in January. Coffee.